So recently, I participated in a prayer walk in downtown Wheaton. It was organized by some Wheaton College alumni, and the point of this walk was to pray and lament over many of the racial injustices that we've been witnessing over the past couple months. And at these kinds of things, uh, you may hear people chanting, or you may see it on a sign, the phrase, no justice, no peace. Now, that phrase can be used in different ways, but the, the, the core idea of it is so biblical, it's so right. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. basically said the same thing. He said, there can be no justice without peace, and there can be no peace without justice. He's absolutely right. You see, God created this world in order for us to share in His love and His perfect peace. And you see that all throughout the Bible, this, the, this word peace. and In the Hebrew, it's the word shalom. And it's the idea that we were created to live in harmony with God, with all people, and with all creation. Living in shalom is living in the way God intended humanity to live upon the earth, existing for His glory. And the Bible says in the Psalms that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. But that foundation in our world has been shaken to the core ever since the fall of humanity. And so our world is groaning. All creation is groaning because of the constant injustices and sin in our world. We're groaning and lamenting over, over the racial injustice, over war and violence and persecution and abortion and corporate and personal greed. And we cry out and we long for these things to end and we say, oh God, when will these things come to an end in our world? Is there a solution to all this evil? Will there ever be an end to it? You know, in recent times in our history, uh, relatively speaking, in the late 1800s and the 1900s, uh, there were many people who thought that we would come to a time when there is enough progress, enough education, enough technology that it would finally usher in this era of justice and peace. But those dreams of that kind of world were quickly dashed when all of these educated folk, European people with, with education, with Christian influence and background, when they began to kill one another in massive numbers in World War I and in World War II and in the Holocaust as well. These people, they came from countries with wonderful education, wonderful technology, Christian influence, and yet we saw some of the worst injustices of humankind. So, of course, in our world, we, we celebrate the small steps towards justice that the Lord allows us to see, but the bad news is, as long as there is sin in this world, there will always be injustice. And that means in this world, on this side of eternity, we will never have perfect peace. Now, let me, let me be clear. I really do believe that God is at work establishing His kingdom uh, in this world. And that means we do have a measure of peace, a measure of hope, and a measure of justice in this life. But theologians like to say the kingdom, it's already, but it's not yet. Jesus brought the kingdom here. He established it, but it's not fully established. So on this side of eternity, we will never experience perfect justice and perfect peace until Jesus returns and finally establishes his kingdom. And friends, this is why we have such great hope in the return of Jesus Christ in the flesh to this world. Because the hope and the longing that you have in your heart for justice and for peace, it's a sign that you were made for a different world. It's a sign that there is a different end to this story. 
And God created us like this. God created us with this longing, a longing for a world that is just and full of peace. And that longing is not going to go unrealized. We will see a day when Jesus comes again to restore the world, and he's coming soon. And that's why today, in the second part of our series uh, called The Return, we're talking about the hope that we have because of Jesus' return to our world. I invite you to open up your Bibles at home to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be specifically looking at uh, especially verses 17 through 21. And I want to give you three reasons uh, that we have hope because of Jesus' return. And number one is this. We have hope because Jesus will judge the world. We have hope because Jesus will judge the world. Now, last week I said to you that if you remember anything at all about the end times, remember that it's about Jesus. It's not about all the crazy details. It's about Jesus Christ and his presence and our union with him. Now, if I could give you one more thing, if I could give you a second thing that you should not forget about Jesus' return, it's that when Jesus returns, he's coming to judge the world. This is the, the main thing that Christians have believed for 2,000 years. Uh, when Jesus returns, it's going to be the last day in human history. When every person who has ever lived will stand before him, and they will receive a verdict for the things that they have done in this life, whether good or bad. And the Christians, like I said, they have believed this throughout the centuries. You know, in the creeds that we say together, the Apostles' Creed, it says Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to what? To judge the living and the dead. The Nicene Creed says the same thing. It says he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will never end. So right there, the, the two most prominent statements of the Christian faith that have consensus around the world is the... This is, contains within them the idea that the main thing that Jesus does when he comes is judge the living, all those who happen to be alive when he returns, and the dead, all those who have died before his coming. Uh, the biblical scholar Thomas Oden, he says, it's difficult to imagine that any Christian teaching is more uni universally received than this. The whole world is going to be judged by Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus said it himself in Matthew 25, he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. This is what the Jews believed the Messiah, the coming king would do, that he would judge the world and that means every single wrong, every single injustice and sin will, be, will become right by his judgment. And this was viewed as gospel. This was good news to the people. But many people in our day, they ask, how in the world is Jesus is coming to judge good news? Isn't judgment kind of a bad thing? But we have to go back to the beginning, what I said earlier. Without justice in our world, there can never be God's peace. There can never be the shalom God intended. And when you consider all of the evil that we are witnessing, there has to be some type of resolve, some type of resolution. And I have to agree with what N.T. Wright says. He says, in a world of systematic injustice, 
bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression. The thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and the weak are given their due is the best news that there can be. It means there's going to be a resolve. There's going to be a solution. There's going to be an end to all of this injustice that we see in our world. And that's the good news. When Jesus returns, injustice will be no more. Sin and evil will be no more. Racism will be no more. Violence will be no more. Oppression shall cease in Jesus' name when he comes. That is good news. That's what our hearts are longing for. Everything wrong with our world will be made right when our Lord comes. You know, Paul kind of can, uh, can, continues this thought in Philippians chapter 3, and he's torn up about it. And he says to the people, I, I, I tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. You see, there are many people in this world who oppose Jesus Christ. Paul says their mind is set on the things of this world. And it's, he says they glory in their shame or they, they celebrate the sin. They, they promote it and they celebrate it. And Paul says that kind of living, the destiny of it is destruction. He says it differently in Romans. He says the wages of sin is death. You see, what happens is sin cuts us off from the life-giving presence of God. Sin is a terminal illness, and unless we are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, we will die separated from God and His life-sustaining power. Sometimes Christians refer to this as hell, and what that means is it's, it's the experience of being separated from God eternally. And but the God, in His love and His wisdom, He's offering every single person a cure for this terminal illness that we call sin that we have. That leads to all this evil and injustice. And I like how Martin Luther puts it. He says, a physician says to a sick man, I want you to get well, but I cannot save your life. I want to help you to do it. But if the sufferer will not allow this or accept his services as doctor, the doctor says, now I will not talk to you as your doctor, but because you compel me, I must be your judge and say, you are going to die. See, the Lord holds out to every single person the good news. But the reality is, we are not entitled to eternal life with Him. We are not entitled to God's grace and to God's favor. These are not things that we are entitled to. That These are not just a given, as much as the world might make it seem so. They're not a given. We are sick with sin, and it leads to death. But Jesus has made a way. He has provided a cure to the one sickness that we all experience. We are all going to meet our death, and there is a cure for the other side. There's a resurrection that can take place for those who are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. But ultimately, some people are going to keep choosing injustice. They're going to keep choosing sin. They're going to keep refusing the cure the doctor holds out. I mean, Jesus said as much. He said, this is the verdict. The light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. So some will refuse the cure. Some will refuse to come into the light. They will not choose God or salvation. And Jesus' judgment 
it's, it's not like God is rejoicing over this. He's holding out a cure and a healing for all people. And his healing is going to cover this whole world. All of the brokenness that, that we have in our world will be healed in Jesus' name. That's what Jesus is coming to do in his judgment. And so Christians believe that Jesus' judgment will be, with all, in light of everything that we've just said, we believe that it will be perfectly just, it will be perfectly merciful, and it will be perfectly right. And we believe that by faith. But oftentimes, we're, we're, you know, we're, we struggle and we wrestle with this. And I, and I think that that is perfectly biblical and okay. Because even Abraham, the great father of the faith, he was wrestling. When God came to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham cried out and he, and he said this. He said to God, far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? That's a fair question. Will not the judge do right? Will not he have a just judgment? And we can say by faith in Jesus Christ, yes, he will. Yes, he will. He will do right. He will do every person justice in this world and everything that is broken will be healed in Jesus' name. And friends, we have this hope because we know who the judge is. We can trust the judge. It's Jesus Christ, the one who was judged on the cross in our place. He took the condemnation for us in our place that we might stand before him without fear. The one who loves, the one who gave his life for humanity, that's the one who will be determining the judgment of all people at the end of time. So we can trust that it will be right and true and good. And we know when we have this understanding of Jesus' judgment, I believe that we can truly, with, with all integrity, sing the hymn that says, Rejoice! Rejoice in glorious hope! The Lord our judge shall come! It's something to rejoice about because he's going to restore this broken world. He's going to make it right. And that's why we have hope that one day he will provide the perfect justice and the perfect peace our hearts are longing for. So we have hope because, yes, Jesus will judge and then the world, he will make all things right. Number two, we have hope because Jesus will save us. We have hope because Jesus will will save us. If you are in Christ, you should have absolutely no fear of Jesus' return and of Judgment Day, because He doesn't return to condemn you. He returns to save you. Now, Paul says, while other people, maybe they might be sealing their own fate by rejecting Christ, and their destiny is destruction, and they might have reason. They do have reason to fear. But Christians, on the other hand, he says in verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, Jesus will return to judge and to set the world right. He will remove all injustice and all evil. But for those who accept Him, those who believe in His name and trust in Him, He returns not to condemn, but to save. Look at what Hebrews 9, 27-28 says. We're talking about judgment, just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, the judgment day. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time. Not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. 
He's coming to bring salvation. We are saved and we will be saved from separation from God. We will be given eternal life with Jesus forevermore. Now, of course, we're saved as individuals. I I am saved and I will be saved by Jesus Christ. And, And that is my boast, as Paul said. I boast in nothing except the cross of Jesus Christ. But not only individuals will be saved, all of God's people will be saved together out of this chaotic world that we find ourselves in. Now, Paul, he was often very politically subversive in his letters and his teaching. Uh, Many of you might be familiar that uh, in Rome uh, and throughout the world, Caesar was often referred to as the Lord and Savior of the whole world. Does that sound familiar? Uh, And... And at that time, Roman citizenship was something that was to be greatly prized. And uh, the, Paul, the people that Paul is writing to in Philippi, these are Roman citizens. And they are meant to bring the Roman way of life, the Roman culture, to the Greek colony of Philippi. And so Paul is being very subversive here. He's saying, uh, your citizenship is not in Rome. Your citizenship is in heaven. And we are not awaiting Caesar to be our Savior. We're awaiting our Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ alone. Now, I think there's, this is a fascinating analogy because in the situation in Philippi, if hypothetically, if some other nation were to come attack the colony and they were in trouble, what they would do is they would call upon the emperor. They would send a message. They would say, we are in trouble. Come and save us. Come and rescue us from the hands of our enemies out of this chaotic situation that we are in. And because The Roman emperor was the most powerful person in the world at that time. He had a large amount of resources to come and actually save the people and deliver them and redeem them out of the hands of their enemies. And Paul's using this analogy to say, we're not awaiting Caesar to do that. We're awaiting Jesus to do that for us in a spiritual way. Because in the same way, our world is under attack. Satan, God's enemy, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for people to devour and to destroy. And I, I believe that he is rejoicing over all of the evil that we're seeing in our world right now. And all, and that all of this stuff that we've been witnessing, all, all the brokenness, the violence, the killing, the injustices, these are the work of a real enemy, God's enemy. And death itself is the great enemy of humanity, separating us from one another. And all of these things are the enemies against God's good world. And so our only hope in life and death is to call upon the Savior, is to call upon the Lord who has all the resources of heaven and earth to come and to rescue rescue us out of this horrible situation and redeem this world. So that's our hope. And we eagerly, Paul says, we eagerly await Jesus to do this. Aren't you eager for Jesus to redeem this world? Aren't you eager for Jesus to fix all the brokenness that you see going on around you? And that's why the early church, they often prayed, Come, Lord Jesus. Come and deliver us out of this mess. We are eagerly awaiting for your return. And we believe that he will save us from this world. He will finally defeat Satan and he will defeat death and sin entirely. And he will establish his perfect kingdom. So the world is going to be totally saved by Jesus Christ the one true Lord and Savior of the world. So Jesus saves us in two ways. He saves us 
as individuals. And he also saves all of his people collectively when he restores and redeems this broken world. So friends, we have hope because Jesus will save us. We believe. And finally, number three, we have hope because Jesus will transform us. We have hope because Jesus will transform us. Actually, I need to say it at the screen. Uh, Paul, in his passage in Philippians, it's not on there. Okay, never mind. All right, here we go. In your Bibles at home, we have Philippians 3. It says, We await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 21, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like His glorious body. Now, I'm, I'm not going to dive into a lot of detail on this verse uh, because it's talking about the resurrection and our resurrection bodies. And I'm going to talk about that in a couple weeks when we end this series. But what I want to focus on is when Jesus returns, we will be resurrected to life and we will be transformed into Christ's likeness. You see, we are so sick of all the evil and injustice in our world. But if we are honest, the evil and injustice in this world is caused by us. It's caused by humanity, the evil in our own hearts. And so when, when Jesus comes to redeem and cleanse this world of injustice, he's going to cleanse the sin and injustice out of us. And that's good news. See, the good doctor will heal the sickness of our hearts, the sin that so easily entangles. It will be no more, and we will all be like Jesus Christ. Okay, now I need to go to the screen. 1 John 3, chapter 2 says this. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Do you notice that? Simply seeing Jesus Christ in his glory will transform you into his likeness. It is going to be so glorious we can't even fathom it. You know, we were created to reflect God's image. And when we see Jesus, we are going to be so transformed and we will be restored to what we were created to do. We will reflect the image of God, the image of Jesus Christ. It's a story of a, uh, a pastor named David Siemens tells in, in 1934... His parents, Arnett and Yvonne, were missionaries in India. And they returned to India to serve another term, but they left pa the pastor David and his older brother JT in the U.S. with their grandmother. Uh, now they were going there, but they had no idea that before they were going to return uh, on furlough, that World War II was going to break out. And so they were stuck on the other side of the world for quite some time. Now David, he was eight years old when his parents left for India. And he wasn't going to see them until he was 20 years old. And when David was a senior at Asbury College, he received a telegram that his parents had arrived safely in California and they were getting on a train and they were going to be at the station the next day at 5 a.m. And so David woke up early the next morning, excited, frantic, and he arrived at the train station while it was still dark. And his parents 
get off the train and he runs to them and they embrace and there is crying and there is, there is just this powerful moment, but it's still dark and they can't really see each other that well. So they walk back to the station and go into the light and his mother is hugging him and crying over David. And she's looking him head to toe. Can you, parents, can you imagine this? Not seeing your son or daughter for eight years. They look different. They, everything is different about them. And she looks him up and down. And she says to her husband, Oh, Arnett, oh, Arnett, he's gone and just looked, and looked just like you. He's gone and looked just like you. Over those eight years, David had transformed, and all of a sudden, he looked just like his dad. And his parents were in shock and in disbelief. How shocking that must have been to not have seen your son for eight years, and now they look like their father. See, when we all are reunited with Jesus and with one another. We're going to worship Jesus. It is going to be glorious. But I believe we're going to look around and we're going to see one another in the resurrected state and we're going to be shocked. And we're going to say to each other, oh my goodness, you look just like him. You look just like Jesus Christ. It is going to be glorious. We can't even fathom it. All of your imperfections, all of your sin, all of your worries and your cares, all of your failures, all of the things that, that, that hold you back in this life, they will be gone. And you will be transformed. You will be made new. And you will look like Jesus Christ. And you will be exactly as God made you to be. Friends, it's going to be wonderful. I, that should fill our hearts with glorious hope. That's what the return of Jesus does for us when we believe this. We believe that the return of Jesus Christ is our world's greatest hope. And so, friends, we have hope today because, yes, Jesus will judge the world and make all things right. We have hope because we know that we will be saved. And we have hope because we know that Jesus will transform us. So my question for you today is, what do you do when you start losing hope? What do you do? There might, there might be many things that you turn to, but friends, today, let me say this. When you start losing hope, remember the end of the story. By faith, we believe that Jesus is one day going to make all things right and there will be justice and peace. We have to remember that Jesus is going to save us and redeem us out of this whole mess that we find ourselves in. And we have to remember that we will be transformed and all of the anxieties and all of the sin will, know, will be no more. And that's the hope that we have. And what that means for us is that it means that what we do in this life ultimately matters. It matters. So hope for the end does not lead to inaction in the present because, 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 because there is a good end to this story. That means all of this has meaning. It's not just going to carry on forever into eternity and there's no, more res there's no resolution. No, there is a resolve to this story and that means what you do matters. What you do to alleviate the suffering of others, what you do to lift others up out of injustice and oppression, that matters because there is an end and because there is hope. And all of this will have an impact when we stand before Jesus face to face. So next week, we're going to be talking specifically about action and what we specifically can do to be prepared for that day. 
But today, remember, remember that Jesus is our hope over all the problems of this world. And he's even hope beyond the grave because he will give us his eternal life by grace through faith in him. So today, may you know the hope of Jesus' return. When he comes, he will give this world both complete justice and complete peace. He will make all things right. And I close with the words of the Apostle Paul. As Paul prayed, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit.